Now let's open our Bibles one final time to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we are finishing our study of the book of Romans this morning. And yes, I am very sad about it. Uh, but we are finishing our study in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16, going to read together that final doxology. If you would, if you are able, stand together with me in honor of the word of God. So we hear now the word of the Lord from our brother, the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 16, in verse 25, this is the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for all the good that you've accomplished by your spirit through this book in history and in our lives. And we pray, God, that, that by your spirit, you would use your word today to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, to convict us of sin, to, to breathe life where there has been dead coldness in hearts, to, to draw your people back to you where there has been backsliding and complacency. Lord, in each one of us to transform us more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, to whom all praise is due, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Like I said, today we are finishing our study, our lengthy study in the book of Romans. We began on January 5th, 2020. I'm just curious, we have a lot of uh, people missing in empty spots. How many of you were not even a part of this church on January 5th, 2020? We have a, a number of, of people that weren't even here all the way back then when he did that. And a lot has changed in our world since January 5th, 2020. Our world is a different world than it was. Oh, we were so sweet and naive back then. COVID came, changed things dramatically, made it so there's, there's no good fast food restaurants anymore but Chick-fil-A. Everything else is garbage. The Black Lives Matter riots that burned our cities to the ground Critical race theory is a part of all of that, rising to prominence to where now it's at the beginning of all this, when it first started being taught, it was just a few people who were like, we got to watch out for this. And everybody else is like, I've never even heard of this. Well, now, now undercover reports are going into our local schools and finding out they're teaching this to the children. They're just lying to the parents about it. The, the, the insanity 
connected to all that is LGBTQ plus and all, all the rest that has just escalated and escalated and escalated. Even as we look back to the beginning of 2020, we go, how did we get here from there? We've gotten a new president. We've had a dubious election. We've got outrageous uh, inflation. Our lives are different. We've got drag queen story hour. That's, a, that's a, a set of words we never thought we'd be throwing together. Roe versus Wade was overturned. It's not all bad. The Kansas Jayhawks won the national championship in basketball. In, in all of the things that have happened, in all the time that has passed, this book has remained intensely relevant through all of it, every change that has come throughout all of history, and not just this little tiny window of time. The truth presented here is evergreen. It is timeless truth. It's only more true now than it has ever been. If it were possible, as the Apostle Paul wrote these words in the first century, it's even more true now than it was when he wrote it then. I love this book. I love its author. I love our friend and our brother, the Apostle Paul. If I could only read one book for the rest of my life, it is a no-brainer. I said this on the the first Sunday we started Romans. No-brainer, it's Romans. And I can tell you after spending these years in Romans, it's all the more sure in my mind. If I had one book, this is the one. There are mind-blowing glories here. And this is our 100th sermon in the book of Romans, and we have only scratched just the tiniest surface of the glories that this book holds. It's, it's too immense. It's too deep. It's too glorious for us to ever master it, for us to ever plumb its depths. But by God's grace, I trust we have all supernaturally benefited from our study of this book. I know that I have. This book has always done that for God's people. It has always transformed the minds of God's people. The greatest revivals, the greatest reformations in Christian history have come about because of the power of this book. This book stands out among the entire canon of Scripture and its importance in changing lives in those moments. A couple of historical examples I'll remind you of. I shared some of these three and a half years ago when we started our study of Romans, but we look at, at the towering figure of Augustine, the summer of 386 AD, sitting in a garden, weeping. He wanted to live for God, but his life was steeped in sin. He would not, could not let go of his sin. And so he sat with a scroll of scripture sitting next to him, weeping over his sin and his own inability he, he, he recognized to save himself. And he heard a child singing in the neighboring yard, singing tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. He took that as a message from God to him. Take up the scroll right next to you. Read what it says. And he reads from a portion of Romans, what we know as Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And, and Augustine said this, no further would I read nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt 
vanished away. At this moment, from one sentence from the book of Romans, Augustine was converted. He became one of the greatest teachers in the history of the church, framing much of theology as we understand it today. Of course, we've spoken many times of that great Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, who in November of 1515 was a professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg. He began teaching through the book of Romans, studying and teaching this book from November 1515 to September 1516. He was deeply, in his teaching of this book, aware of God's holiness, of God's justice. He was deeply aware of his own unrighteousness. If you can remember all the way back there when we started the book of Romans and Paul just walks us over to the edge of that to to that ledge, to look down into that pit of our guilt and our rebellion and our sin and our condemnation and, and lifts our eyes to see the holiness of God the Father Almighty, the judge of all, and you you are responsible to him, although you have no desire to be saved. Luther felt that to his core. He felt it in his bones. There are there are funny stories of the despair that Luther felt. Luther as a monk going to confession, and the confessor, after two hours of Luther pouring out his soul, saying, you better come back with something real if you're coming back tomorrow. Luther just aware, he cannot measure up to this standard of, of holiness, of perfection. It drove him to, not towards the throne of grace, it drove him to despair. He said, love God, I hated this God of righteousness. Because I know that means he must punish the unrighteous. But it's through his study of this book of Romans, Luther came to understand the gospel for the first time. He came to understand that, that justification, our right standing with God, is not based on our righteousness, but what Luther called an alien righteousness, one that comes from, from outside of us. It's, it's based on Christ's perfect righteousness credited to us. And Luther went from hating God wanting to flee from the righteousness of God, to then having his eyes opened by the Holy Spirit of God and saying Romans was like a gateway of heaven. Luther says it's as if the, the doors to paradise were flung wide open and I walked right in. May 24th, 1738, John Wesley. John Wesley was already a preacher at this time. Wesley was also in despair. Wesley... The pastor, the preacher, had come to the conclusion that he was unconverted. And again, he found himself in the same place that Luther and Augustine found themselves in. I can't do anything about it. I believe in this God that I'm preaching, but I know in my soul that I'm not converted. And what can I do about this? He reluctantly went to a meeting where a man was reading from Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. And just hearing Luther's, Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans and how Romans had, had presented the gospel and had transformed Luther's life, Wesley writes this at, in his journal at 8.45 that night. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I myself felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me 
that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This is what God does through his word. This is how God has, we're talking about towering giants in the history of our faith. John Calvin said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to him to all the hidden treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale says, it's the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the purest gospel. Every Christian should know Romans word for word by heart, should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. The more it's dealt with, the more precious it becomes, the better it tastes. That, that, that's my prayer that, that in this last three years of studying Romans, you haven't come to church week after week going, not Romans again. But then instead, the better it tastes, the sweeter it becomes, the more we study it. It's the, it's the greatest letter. It's the greatest book ever written. It literally transformed the, the world. And the reason it's, it's placed first in the list of Apostle uh, of epistles is not because it was written first. It wasn't written first. James, Galatians, at least were written before Romans. It's, it's placed directly following the gospel and Acts because of how enormously important it is. Because to understand this book is to understand everything. It's to understand the gospel. And one of the greatest reasons for this, as we studied this letter and we heard as we were coming to the conclusion, Paul saying, I want to make it to Rome. I want to get there to see you. And yet his, something had hindered him time and time again from, from doing what he wanted to do. We see that that's God's kind providence to, to delay Paul from being able to come see these Christians who he so desperately wanted to see. It was a frustration to Paul. It was surely a frustration to the Roman Christians, but because he couldn't come visit them, we get this letter. This letter that we wouldn't have if Paul had been able to go visit them. It was a kindness from God. It was a gift of God to us. Paul's frustration and their frustration was a gift of God to us. Because it made him put his apostolic teachings in writing. What did, what did Paul teach when he went and established churches and built them up? What, what were the things he taught? Well, it was these things. Our, our other letters, our other epistles are occasional epistles. In other words, some occasion has prompted the writing of this. I'm writing to you, church in Corinth, because you are a disaster. And I need to talk to you about the various areas of disaster that I see going on and address these things. I'm writing to you, church in Galatia, because these wicked false teachers have come in and I need to address these things. But what we have in Romans is not addressing current problems and situations in a, in a particular church. We have a systematic, thorough, supernaturally inspired exposition of the gospel and its implications. What did Paul teach in person in Corinth? What did he teach in person in Galatia? Why was he so upset with them from turning aside to false teaching? It was because Paul had taught them these things when he was there. And since he couldn't get to Romans, we get that apostolic teaching from Paul. What a gift. It's no wonder this book stands out. John MacArthur, in his introduction to the commentary on Romans, says it, because of that, it answers all of the important questions. It answers all of the important questions. What's the good news of God? What is the gospel? What 
Is Jesus really God? What is God like? How can a loving God send people to hell? What is sin? What is man's biggest sin? Why is there sexual perversion and hate and crime and dishonesty? And the list could go on and on and on as we look at the world around us. Why is there evil at all? Why do bad things happen? If God is all-powerful, if God is good, why do bad things happen at all in this world? What's the standard by which God will judge people? What about people who've never heard of the gospel? What's the standard by which God will judge them? How can sinners be forgiven and justified by God? How important is obedience in the life of the Christian? What exactly does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the believer? How can a Christian pray properly? These words election and predestination, what do they mean? How secure or insecure is the believer's salvation? What does it mean to be chosen by God? What what does it mean for the Jews and the Gentiles when Paul uses that word, chosen for God? What should our relationship be to the government? What should our relationship be to the unsaved world? What should our relationship be to other Christians? These are just a fraction of the questions that, that are raised and answered in this book. And so God frustrated Paul's plans for our good, that this teaching would be put in writing for us. God ordained to prevent Paul from coming to Rome in person so that we would have this glorious writing, the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. What a gift it is. And as we were going down that list of the things addressed in that book, those are, those are the questions. Those are the questions that the unbelieving world is throwing at Christians. They are their trump cards. They are the, this is the, the biggest shots in their arsenal at us. And as we go down that list... If you've been here for this whole three-year study of Romans, I hope as you're going down, you're like, well, I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. Romans gives us everything. So let's turn our attention now to these final words in the book of Romans. It is a fitting conclusion. This final verse, this final statement. It is the absolute perfect conclusion to this book and Really, what else would we expect from the fully inspired Word of God but the perfect conclusion to this book? He says in verse 27, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were to choose one attribute of God to emphasize, after 16 chapters of exposition of God's glory in the gospel. After all of those things we just talked about, a book like this, a book that scales the heights of the revelation of God's eternally, infinitely, mind-blowingly great work in salvation. What one attribute of God would you choose to emphasize? Well, the choice is very hard. So many seem appropriate. God's grace would be an obvious contender. This amazing kindness from God that didn't give us the condemnation we deserve, but instead chose to pardon treasonous rebels who didn't even want to be saved. To reconcile us to himself through the death of his son. That would be an obvious choice. Perhaps it's the love of God. 
that condescends to us. His holiness, his sovereignty, his justice, his mercy. Well, we don't have to choose just one when we think about God as we study this book. But Paul ends his letter with a final emphasis on one attribute of God, and that is the wisdom of God. Paul talks about the only wise God. In other words, among all the other so-called gods, among all the imposters, among all the pretenders to the throne, it's only the God of the Bible who is worthy of the title God. He is the only true God, the only one to whom all glory belongs now and forevermore. And on account of this gospel with which he saves us, he is proven In all that Paul has said here in 16 chapters, this one true God is proven to be the only supremely wise God. That's why Paul concludes here with praise to God for his wisdom. This wisdom of God that has designed and accomplished his astounding plan of redemption. This astounding plan of redemption that has been revealed, that has been illustrated, that has been expounded in this letter. We have seen his wisdom in making us holy as he himself is holy. Paul has shown us that we're sinners by nature, corrupt, twisted by sin from our conception so, so how can we who are born in sin be seen as holy in the eyes of a holy God who cannot deny his own holiness? How can that be? This is, this is our greatest problem. Luther understood that correctly before his conversion. This is our greatest problem. It is that God is holy. And we are not. So how could it be? How could God see us as holy? That perfect holiness which he requires, which his own holiness requires, which his justice requires, how could God see us that way without denying himself when we simply aren't holy? How could he see rebels, treasonous enemies, who do nothing but sin as holy? The answer is in the heart of the gospel. God provides the gift of righteousness, an alien righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive not by our works, but by faith alone. The the wisdom of God has solved the problem of our unholiness. We've seen his wisdom in the justification of sinners. Romans again has shown us that all mankind stood rightly condemned in our father Adam. Sinners by birth, sinners by choice, sinners by action. We have brought this condemnation upon ourselves. We have absolutely no way to atone for our guilt. We're in a completely lost condition. So how can a holy and a just God overlook our sin? Of course, we know no just judge could ever just overlook the the crime of the accused. Any murderer that stood before the judge and the judge says, you know, I've chosen to have mercy on you today, you go free. We would say justice has not been carried out. This is an unjust judge. How can God do this? 
God can't brush sin under the rug. God cannot deny himself. It would mean that he was not a God of justice. So how can there be any hope for us at all? Well, enter the wisdom of God in his perfect plan of salvation. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This statement can't just stand on its own and end too soon. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. End of sentence. No, that can't be. He would not be just. He would be that judge who tells the guilty murderer, go ahead and go free. I'm feeling good today. Notice, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood. It's only the vast wisdom of God that sin can be fully paid for and the sinner go free. Both things, sin, sin paid for and the sinner goes free. It's the glory of God that both justice and love can be fully satisfied. That God can both be just and the full and right punishment of sin, and he can be the justifier who offers mercy and grace and saves the sinner. God's wisdom is fully displayed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the wisdom of God in uniting every believer to Christ. How can we, sheep, who are easily led astray, be kept by God in such a way that we will never be lost? How could God pull that off? God's done all of this to, to, to lift us from that pit, to break us free from our solidarity with Adam and our condemnation in him. We're still sheep. We're still, can we be honest with ourselves, pretty dumb. We make a lot of stupid decisions. We do a lot of dumb things. How can God ensure that we'll be kept by him in such a way that we'll never be lost? How can God ensure that we won't abuse his grace? We've been saved by grace. We've been lifted out of this pit. How can, how can God ensure that we won't just take on the mindset, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so I might as well sin a lot. How can God ensure that we won't abuse his grace? Well, Romans has told us the answer. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can those who have died to sin live in it? God, in his wisdom, wisdom that only God could possess, has united every believer to his son, causing us to die to the power of sin. The wisdom of God in the gospel enables God to give full and free salvation and to credit us with Christ's righteousness, and also to guarantee the holiness that accords with salvation, to, to cause us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He does this through our union with Christ. It's by placing us in Christ. That's how God ensures that he will keep us in the faith, 
He will keep us walking in the holiness that accords with salvation, bearing fruit in keeping with salvation. It's not just that we have new hearts and new minds. Yes, it is that, but he has also placed us in his son. It's in our union with Christ. This is the wisdom of God. No man could have devised this great salvation. There there is much, much more we could say about God's wisdom as it is revealed to us in Romans, but time prevents us from doing that. We see his wisdom in human governments and their purposes. We see his wisdom in the freedom of Christian conscience. We see his wisdom in the unity and ministry of the church. We see his wisdom in his glory. And all of this, Paul says, is through Jesus Christ. It's only through him that God can be known. We could not know our triune God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who is co-equal, co-eternal, of the same divine essence with God the Father Almighty. The one who took on flesh. The one who came to earth so that we could behold the glory of of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is, Colossians 1 says, the image of the invisible God. The triune God can only be known through Him, and it is only through Christ that the triune God can be worshipped. It's one thing to know that there's a God out there. It's another thing to be able to worship Him in a way that He will receive. He's the only mediator between God and man. He is, Hebrews 12 says, the mediator of the new covenant. It's only through Christ that God can be approached. It's only through him that God can be known and explained. It's only through Christ that God can be enjoyed. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that the triune God can be worshipped and embraced. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. People use that expression, that we pray in Jesus' name, that we're told to pray in Jesus' name as if it is some kind of magical incantation. I heard one preacher describe, describe this teaching that all the things we pray in Jesus' name, God has to do for us, that health and wealth, prosperity, abuse of the scriptural teaching on prayer. He says it's as if we think God is a pinata and our prayers in Jesus' name are the stick that we whack him with so the goodies fall from heaven. That is not why we pray in Jesus' name. It is not a mantra. It is not a magical incantation as some treat it. One member of my own household, who we called Asher, the little three-year-old prayer Nazi, because we would be praying. I can remember one time, it was great because it was my dad who was the victim of this. We are sharing a meal together and my dad offers thanks for the food, and he just says, amen. And young three-year-old Asher goes, in Jesus' name, amen? He was big on that. In Jesus' name, amen? No, it's not some kind of magical formula. It is, though, a profound statement of theological reality. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We are coming to God through Christ. We are coming to God in Christ. We are coming to God by way of Christ. We are coming to God because in Christ and only in Christ is Almighty God our Father. That's why it matters that we pray in Jesus' name. 
Jesus Christ alone is our mediator. He alone is our redeemer. He alone is our justification. He alone is our atonement. He alone is our life. He alone is our hope. He alone is our everything. He has opened up for us a new and living way so that we can draw near in him to God's throne of grace in full assurance of faith to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's all in Christ. As Paul says here, through Jesus Christ. And such wisdom, such grace, such power, such a gospel magnifies the glory of God. Paul says in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Since he's the only true God, since he is sovereign in his wisdom, since he has redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ, can we do anything less than consider him worthy of all glory? As we saw last week, this is to be our opinion of him. We are to have high and lofty thoughts of our God. We'll never think him too great. We'll never go too far in ascribing glory to him. To him be the doxa, the glory, the honor, the praise forever. He is worthy to be honored and praised. He is worthy of worship. And Paul says, forevermore. Forevermore. This this doxology will never end. This is unending praise, unending glory, never ceasing honor to the only wise God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be our eternal joy, having been totally freed from sin, having been glorified in his presence, knowing him fully, even as we are fully known, to give him unending praise, unending glory, our full and glad submission and service, our unending and joyous affection and gratitude. This will be our great joy. It's, imagine this. One billion years from now, not only will you not be bored with this, you will be enraptured with this. It will be fresh to you to give glory to this God to whom all glory is due. When you see with eyes that are not dimmed by sin, they're not colored by sin, He's worthy. He's worthy and all honor and glory belongs to him. It is his. This isn't just some future consummation we're waiting for. Yes, we are waiting for that. We are longing for that day. Our hearts are set on eternity. We just sang it together this morning. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. We long for that. Come, my Lord. No longer tarry. Bring your promises to pass. But it's not just for the future. It's now. It's right now. The ESV Study Bible says this. I like this on this passage. God's glory is to be the theme of Christians' lives and the joy of their hearts. This glorifying of God, this this vision of the glorious, the big, the the praiseworthy, the, the one to whom all honor is due, this vision of God is not just something in the future that we'll behold in, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. 
This is to be the all-consuming purpose and passion of our lives, the joy of our hearts right now. He is worthy to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore. And then we come to the final word of this glorious book. It is not a throwaway word. Amen. It's not just a word that Paul throws in because he's a good Baptist. Why does he mean when he says, Amen? The word's actually a Hebrew word, transliterated into Greek, transliterated into English. In fact, just about anywhere you go in the world today where there are Christians, they just transliterate this word and they say, Amen. The word means truth. Truth. It's used to describe God himself as the God of truth. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful, that's the word, the amen, God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word sure, amen. The testimony of the Lord is amen, making wise the simple. When God says amen, it means it's so. It will come to pass. When we say amen, we're saying that what God has said is truth and that God will bring it to pass, that we will obey it, that we will honor it, that we will submit to it. This is truth, divine truth. Has this sort of twofold weight. It is truth. And it is, let it be so. So Paul comes to the end of this great revelation of God. This revelation of God in his glory. This revelation of God in his sovereignty. This revelation of God in his justice and his holiness and his wisdom. This revelation of God in his grace and his kindness and his love. And he says, Amen. Amen. It is true. And as we come to the end of our study of this letter, we say with our brother Paul, Amen. This truth is God's truth. We, we rejoice in it. We submit to it. By God's grace, we will strive to live it out, to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. This ends with, it ends our exposition of this wonderful book of Romans. What a gift it is. What a gift it has been to, to study it together this last three and a half years. Closing, I want to read to you the words of the Apostle Paul, or of, of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is not the Apostle Paul. We know that because he was Presbyterian. He's not infallible. He said this, in every generation all over the world, the gospel that Paul lovingly, jealously, passionately sets forth here is in his magnum opus is obscured. It's attacked and almost brought to ruin. But Paul's prayer that people would be established in that gospel forever has borne witness by the history of the church. Despite all heresies, persecutions, distortions, the gospel that was revealed here continues to be manifested by the wisdom, power, and establishment of God.
who alone receives all the glory. Satan and all his forces can come against the word of God and the truth of his gospel, but they will never be able to defeat it. They will never be able to silence it. They will never be able to subdue his church because he sustains us by his word and his spirit. Now we will give the Apostle Paul the final word on our exposition of the book of Romans to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this good gift in the book of Romans that you have given to us through the hand of our brother Paul. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that is revealed here. We thank you, Lord, for the, the God whose gospel this is, this, this God who reigns in majesty and might, this God who is full of grace and truth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our willing substitute, our willing sacrifice who came and lived the sinless life in our place on our behalf, who came and bore the wrath of God in our place on our behalf, who rose victorious from the grave, who is ascended to the right hand of glory, interceding for us even now. We rejoice in the promises of your gospel, these unshakable truths that we have studied from this book over this last three years. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We thank you for your spirit who is our sure deposit of that salvation. We thank you for the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will return for us, that we will be with him and be in your presence for all of eternity, rejoicing in you, glorying in you. And we pray, Lord, that now, that today, from this moment forward in our lives, that your glory would be the joy of our hearts, the driving purpose of our lives and all that we do. When we go to work at our jobs, when we love our husband and our wife, when we raise our children, when we relate to anyone that you've brought into our lives, and the way that we, we do things in this church, in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds, that the glory of our triune God would be the driving passion of our lives. We pray to that end, that you would be glorified in us and through us for your kingdom's sake and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.